Good morning. I'd like to encourage each of you to go ahead and take out your Bibles and be opening them up to the New Testament. We will be considering Jesus' words this morning in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 48. It is so good to be here this morning with you, so good to have our visitors here with us. Uh, and, and just a reminder to anyone who maybe has heard it before and forgotten or is visiting with us, if anybody is in need of, of a, an assisted listening device, uh, have a hard time hearing me this morning, please just feel free to raise your hand. I'm sure Jim would be happy to, to grab one of those for you if you were to need that, and Jim's right there in the back. Um, as we've gathered together to study from, from God's Word, Actually, I'm covering a topic that I was asked to cover in an upcoming VBS, a topic that I've been given a lot of thought. And the, the topic was, Kyle, would you talk about how Jesus makes us excel? How does Jesus make me excel? And I was asked to do this in light of these passages, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 48. And so I naturally started thinking a lot about what these passages say. And, and if you're aware of this passage here in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know that it covers... Quite a, bit of, uh, quite a bit of ground. There's a lot of different topics covered. And, and uh, I, I went back to the congregation asking me to do this and said, which one of these topics would you like me to, to focus on? And they said, just focus on the text. And I immediately thought, oh, wow, that's going to be a tough sermon. So I, I started digging into it and I, I realized, and I'm very thankful for the challenge that they gave me. Because I looked at these passages, maybe in a light that I shouldn't have looked at them before in the past. And we're going to look at them again this morning. And I, and I hope come away with a, a better understanding of Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 5. Let's begin by reading the first two verses that I want to look at. That's verses 17 through 19. It says, Do you not think, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets? I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So having previously discussed the citizenship of the kingdom in the beginning of this passage, uh, in the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus has described the citizens of the kingdom and now he is ready to get in and move forward with this description by talking about the righteousness of the kingdom. And to do this, Jesus, he, he comes and he declares that he has a purpose in coming and he has to correct a false view of that purpose. And that purpose was not to, to abolish, but to fulfill. Fulfill the law and the prophets. Some may have thought that Jesus had come to completely overthrow, to completely destroy the old law. But that was actually the entire opposite point and purpose of his coming. He had come to fulfill them. Now, the old law contained over 300 prophecies, all pointing to Christ. We can read about some of these in passages such as Deuteronomy 18, verses 15. And I, I encourage you, if you're taking notes, to write these down and, and go back and look at these uh, sometime. We're not going to get to look at them this morning. But Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and nine, uh, through 19. And Isaiah 53. These are some great passages to look at that talk about some of the prophecies that, that point to Christ. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 is another one of these prophecies. It foretold the coming of the kingdom of God. And over in Mark chapter 1, that's exactly what we see Jesus preaching, um, keeping completely in line with his statement here for the purpose of his coming. In Mark chapter 1, 
Read with me verses 14 through 15. It says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. They also are prophecies foretelling the establishment of a new covenant, a new, a, a new promise for the people of God, a new law that they were going to have. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13 confirms that Jesus brought this new covenant into effect. But until the law and the prophets were fulfilled, until they had been fulfilled, Jesus taught that the law would be just as permanent as the heavens and the earth. Nothing would be taken away until it was fulfilled, and the treatment of that law... While it was still in effect, that would affect a person's standing in the kingdom. We must remember when Jesus refers to the kingdom, he refers to it, it, it has a future aspect. When we look over to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus talks about that future aspect there when he says, Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. And so those who live before the coming of the kingdom in its present sense, in the sense of the kingdom today, which is the church, those who live before that present sense could still be a part of the future kingdom, is what he was saying. In fact, just a few passages over in Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, it says, I say to you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, into the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He was saying here, making this point again, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they would recline at the kingdom of heaven. But these sons of the kingdom, which refers to those Jews who, though by the law, had the right to inherit the kingdom, they would be cast out because of their rejectment of its fulfillment in Christ. So Jesus ultimately comes to fulfill the law and would fulfill the law and the prophets, but at the time of his Sermon on the Mount, at the time of what we're reading about here in Matthew chapter 5, this had not happened yet. And so true to his statement in verse 19, he taught his disciples, you be faithful to God's law which is now in effect, which would have been the old law. But if this is the case, then why do we have verses 21 through 48? Why do we have Jesus start making these comparisons? If the disciples are to live under the old law, which, which still stood at that time, why does it seem that Jesus starts giving them a new law? <coughs> this is the way that many have viewed this section of Scripture. This is the way in the past that I have made the mistake of viewing this section of Scripture. As a comparison between the old law and the new law, the law of Moses and the law of Christ. But if that is the case, then in essence, Jesus was teaching that the old law only condemned outward actions. And Jesus' new law would condemn the inward condition that led to the outward action. But as I've read through this again, I, I understand this differently now. Rather than a contrast between the old law and the new law, the old law and Jesus' law, I believe we see Jesus here making a contrast between the traditions and its role in the interpretation and the application of the old law. And the contrasting that between the righteousness of the kingdom that Jesus would require of his disciples. I believe Jesus is showing that the righteousness of the kingdom, while contrary to the way Jewish leaders had interpreted and implied the law, it was absolutely in harmony with the original spirit of the law given by Moses to the Israelites. Notice that when Jesus refers to the law, if you want to look over, maybe jot these down, Matthew chapter 8, verse 4, Matthew 4, 4, and verse 7, and verse 10, 
when Jesus refers to the law of Moses, he, he says things like this, Moses commanded, or it is written. But in these next several passages, I want us to pay attention to his words. Listen to his words in verses 21 and verse 27 and verse 38 and verse 43 when he says, you have heard that the ancients were told. Or he says, you have heard that it was said. Verse 31, again, he says, it was said. And in verse 33, again, he says, you have heard the ancients were told. And in fact, two of the contrasts that Jesus makes in this passages refers to statements that aren't even found in the law of Moses at all. Verse 21 talks about whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Again, this was something that was completely from tradition that wasn't found in the old law. Verse 43, uh, when it talks about love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Again, that was something they had added into that. So Jesus contrasts in these passages, these, these six contrasts that we're going to talk about are not contrast of the law to the new law, the old law to the new law. They're contrast of the law to its common application in that day. Because I want us to remember, the old law absolutely did concern things of the heart. It concerned the inner thoughts of the heart. Deuteronomy chapter 6 makes that very clear in verses 4 through 7 when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Isaiah 29 verse 13, that passage there is a very complaining passage when it says, look, it's talking about the people. It says the people's heart have gone far from the Lord. And so as we continue then, I want us to keep in view that Jesus is here not contrasting his new, his new law to the old law, but he's contrasting the current application of the Jewish leaders of that day of the law with what was expected of those who would one day be in the kingdom of heaven. That he then claims in verse 20 that your righteousness should surpass the scribes and the Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven, that should inform us that he was discussing their treatment of the law, that, that, that the way they had treated it, the way they had interpreted it, and the way they had applied it was incorrect. And they were ones that practiced or did not practice what they preached. They were ones who would focus on the lighter matters of the law and completely disregard the weightier matters of the law. And so let's use the remainder of our time to go through these six comparisons and, <coughs> and consider the overarching picture that Jesus is painting from these. Let's read verses 21 through 26. It says, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the courts. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. So this first contrast that we look at that Jesus talks about is the contrast of murder and anger. And notice again, Jesus says here, you have heard. You have heard that the ancients were told, indicating that this was very likely a oral tradition as opposed to that of the written law. And while it may seem fine as we read this to say, that makes absolute sense, that those who commit murder are in danger of the judgment of the court. Absolutely, we understand that, and we would agree with that statement. It is apparent that that statement, though, did not go far enough in how the law should have been interpreted. 
Turn back over to uh, Proverbs chapter 6 for a moment. Hold your place here in Matthew and flip over to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. says, There are six things which the Lord hates, and yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, a hand that sheds innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife amongst brothers. <clears throat> Not only are hands that shed innocent blood appalling to the Lord. It's not only that that he hates, and that is not, not only the thing that's an abomination to him. We also see here that he hates a heart that devises wicked plans, that, that is setting and thinking about what he could do to his brother or, or, or what might be done to, to maybe, maybe hurt him or to help him to be gained in some way by his, uh, his ill treatment. One that spreads strife. Not even, not even necessarily physical pain here, but just just strife, emotional pain, and trouble that is spread amongst brethren. God hates these things. And so Jesus is now applying the law accordingly to what God's, uh, to the heart of God and to the heart of the message that was originally given, saying that those who are angry with their brethren are guilty before the court. You say those who, who commit murder are guilty before the court. And these, this court here would, would very likely refer to the local courts that were found throughout Palestine. Jesus says, just being angry with your brother. Some translations say angry without a cause. You're guilty of the judgment of the court. <clears throat> he goes on to say, those who call their brother good for nothing. Maybe your translation says raka, or even some translations say idiot. The idea here is a verbal insult. Having more than just a silent rage, more than just, just thoughts of, of, of anger about a brother, but um, having that move further to offensive speech. They are guilty before the Supreme Court or council. This is, again, likely referring to, to the Sanhedrin, which to the Hebrews, that represented the highest form of earthly judgment, having the right to condemn one to death. And then he talks about those who call their brother fool. This being equivalent to them, uh, to the Hebrews, saying someone is godless, someone is wretched. And this is a very bitter reproach in one who, and one who is guilty of is guilty of hell's fire. And so one thing that Jesus points out in this is that sin has stages. Sin certainly has stages, and God takes note of those stages, not at the very end of them, not at murder, but at the very conception of sin in a man's life. The very conception of sin, a man's soul is in peril long before the fruit of that sin is born. And so Jesus goes on to point out just how serious this is, this uncontrolled anger. Uh, these emotions uh, not only affect our relationship with man, but it affects our relationship with God. He says, don't even try to come and to worship God when you are at odds with one of your brethren. Be quick to make up with your brother before this uncontrolled anger leads to much worse conditions. So Jesus' first contrast here is that of anger and murder. And again, contrasting their original uh, their translation or their, their interpretation, excuse me, of, of, the, of the law and what the righteousness of the kingdom, what the true translation uh, interpretation should have been. He goes on to the next subject now, verses 27 through 30, of adultery, saying, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, Tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And again, the traditional view here was stressed by the Pharisees that if one did not actually commit the act of adultery, one was not guilty. And again, Jesus interprets and applies the law differently, saying that you don't, have, you don't have to just commit the act of adultery to be guilty. If you are guilty of just looking at a woman with lust for her, you are just as guilty as one who has committed adultery. Note then that what he was saying was if you, look, if, if you were to look at someone with, uh, with a strong desire to have them, a strong desire to, to possess or to even dominate that's that word lust. That's what that means. If that makes one guilty. And that's completely in harmony with the law. Whenever we read and flip back to the 10th commandment, the 10th commandment condemned coveting your neighbor's wife. That's the exact same sort of terminology that is, that is used to describe lust. Even in the book of Job, if you want to turn over to, the, to Job chapter 31, see that this, this, what he was teaching them was not something that was new. In Job 31, verse 1, Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Job understood this in his day, so far removed from the Pharisees, that, that even gazing upon one was something that was, that was forbidden, was something that should not be done. This was completely in line with the old law, his teaching here. And it was so much more at the heart of the law than how they had been interpreting it. And so serious is lust that Jesus goes on to, to say that one should remove any stumbling blocks that might cause them to lust by saying pluck out the eye or cut off the hand that makes you stumble and cast it off from you. Now I hope that it's obvious that Jesus is, is not being literal here. Otherwise historians would have recorded a, a very large uptick in the sale of hooks and, and eye patches around the first century. But to better understand what Jesus is talking about when he says this, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, very similar language is used, but is described uh, maybe a little better when it says, Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. The eye, the hand used in these things, they represent offenses. They represent things that tempt us, that cause us to sin. Jesus' Jesus's desire in, in this passage is to, to help them see that the heart of God's message was not don't commit the sin. It was don't allow anything that might even tempt you to commit the sin to be near you. Take it very seriously, the consequences that sin has, and drastically separate yourselves from these things which might tempt you to sin. And that leads us to the next contrast, and that is divorce. Verse 31, it says, It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity or unfaithfulness, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now again, when we consider the, the traditional view here, the traditional view that they had was that whoever divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That was their interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24. Let's flip over there. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. They had focused on the mentioning in this passage 
of the giving of a certificate of divorce and had thus applied their law in light of, of, of what is said there, of that certification. But is that actually what the law says in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4? Let's read that together. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Again, that, that terminology is the same as what we read in Matthew. It's talking about unchastity, unfaithfulness, uh, something that has made her not faithful to him. It says he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. The first three verses of Deuteronomy 24 are painting a picture for us of a particular situation that, that is being talked about. But it's actually verse 4 where Moses makes the only commandment that what must not be done. The passage simply forbids the remarrying of the man to his wife after she has been married to another. Another example of this is Jeremiah 3 verse 1. when God, It says, God says if a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not the land be completely polluted? But again, the scribes and the Pharisees had said, well, divorce is okay as long as you give a certificate of divorce. So was this the proper understanding of this passage? Again, let's look at what Jesus' words were to them when he says, everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus was saying there's only one acceptable grounds for divorce, and that is for the, the, uh, the spouse to have, have committed adultery. Divorcing wife for any other grounds actually causes her to commit adultery because it puts her in a place or in a position where she is very likely to remarry. And that was the case in which Moses was talking about. She would become defiled. This was the reasoning behind the first husband not being able to take her back. Because even if the second husband had died, she had already become defiled by the second marriage. This was Jesus' contrast. Their interpretation focused on, it focused on the process of obtaining the divorce. That's what they were looking at. Jesus' interpretation focuses on the law. It focuses on the righteousness of the kingdom. It focuses on what the, the, the effects of the divorce were, what a divorce causes in, in, in the, the life of those that are involved. And unless for the exception of unfaithfulness, it would cause the put-away spouse, the one who had been divorced, to, to commit adultery upon remarrying. And let's be very clear that whoever remarried the divorced woman would commit adultery. And this works both ways in regards to male and female. Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12 goes on to make it very clear that it says that what is said about a man here in Matthew divorcing his wife is just as true about a woman divorcing her husband. And so focusing on the abominable effects that divorce brings, Jesus then turns his attention now to, to something that, that is quite the opposite of these abominable effects, and that is truthfulness in verse 33 through 37. <clears throat> verse 33 says, Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, 
or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. Here it stands to, uh, it stands to show that the Pharisees had become masters of wordsmithing. They could twist, they could distort the law into meeting their desires. We've already seen how they've done that with several of these other contrasts. They would, they would very much like a lawyer look for legal ways to find loopholes to get them what they wanted or to make them look even more pious than they really were. And here's just yet another example of them distorting the law when they would say something along the lines of, you know, yeah, I, I swore to that. I swore that I would do that. I swore that I would uh, help you with this. I swore to whatever reason, but it was not sworn to the Lord. And so since it was not sworn to the Lord, I'm, I don't have to keep it. It's very reminiscent of a child who maybe says, yeah, I said I would do that, but <laughs> my fingers were crossed. You didn't see that behind my back. I had my fingers crossed, and so I, I'm, I don't have to do what I said I was going to do. That was the way they viewed their, their vows, especially when they made a vow to something other than to the Lord. They would say maybe a vow to the throne of God. But again, haha, that wasn't to the Lord. It was to the throne of the Lord. And so I don't have to keep that. We can see how they were very picky, very, very uh, legalistic with their cho- choosing of words to make them on the right side of, of the law in their minds. And Jesus again shows that righteous living of the kingdom does not utilize the use of, of special vows but rather it holds to the essence of the law, which was truthfulness. Consider Psalm chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. In Psalm 15, 1 and 2, the psalmist writes, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. And then in verse, uh, chapter 24 of Psalm <coughs> verses 3 through 4, it says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. In fact, listen to what is recorded in Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. This is a cry out uh, against the lack of truth when it reads, Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and look. Look now and take note. And seek in our open squares, if you can find a man, if there is one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. And although they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. We see that that truthfulness has been at the heart of God's message to his people since the beginning of time. And Jesus exposes them here in Matthew as what they really were, as hypocrites. Over in Matthew chapter 23, let's look there for a moment. Matthew 23 and verses 20 through 22. It clearly shows that swearing by the temple is the exact same thing as swearing by the law. It says, therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by him who, uh, by the temple swears both by the temple and him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sets upon it. Swearing by the temple, swearing by, by any of those things is the exact same thing as swearing by the Lord. And that is exactly what Jesus is going to point out here in verses 34 and 36. That swearing by these things always involves God. 
If you swear by heaven, you're swearing by God because it's his throne. If you swear by the earth, you're swearing by God because it's his footstool. And, and, and if you swear by the he- color of your hair or by the head of your hair, hair of your head, <laughs> I'll get it out. If you swear by the hair of your head, it is only God who can truly control the color of your hair. You are still swearing by God. So instead, he contrasts the heart of the law, which was let your yes be yes and your no be no. In which case, there is no need for oaths. A man with truthfulness in his heart has no need to swear by anything because when he says yes or when he says no, he is reflecting God because he upholds his word. He is faithful to what he has said. And so following this, Jesus moves to his next point, and that is goodwill in verse 38, saying, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow <clears throat> borrow from you. It will first do us well to realize that this statement, an eye for an eye, this statement was never given anywhere in the Bible to individuals. Let's look back over to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24 is one of the passages in which we read about this. And we, we can read t- towards the end of the chapter, uh, Exodus 20, uh, excuse me, 21. Exodus 21 and verses, uh, around verse 25, verse 24 and 25, it says, an eye for an eye, actually let's start in verse 23, but if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty uh, life for life, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. But if we actually step back and we read this passage in context, we realize who was being discussed here. It says verse 22, if a man struggles with each if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury. He shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for eye, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Again, we see the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy 19, and starting in verse 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or or any sin, which he has committed on the evidence of two or three witnesses a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the man who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he has intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. The rest will, be, will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Again, in both of these cases, this was not something given out to individuals to exact their revenge. It was given to the, to the judgment of, of, of the law, of those that were keeping up the law and judging these, uh, these accounts amongst, their, uh, amongst different men. And so we need to first realize that. But it seems, however, that the Pharisees had adopted this passage as their personal authority to exact retribution, to take vengeance into their own hands. And this is expressly forbidden by the law. 
Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to talk more about that verse in just a minute. Proverbs 20 verse 22 (coughs) says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. He will save you. So instead, Jesus teaches the righteousness of, of the kingdom by proclaiming two principles. The first one, he says, do not resist an evil person. The phrase here, do not resist, means do not stand in opposition. Do not make yourself an opponent of an evil person. The type of people who will make up the kingdom of heaven must not be people who are actively seeking trouble who are not looking to to, to find that evil person to get their revenge, to to take what they feel is rightfully theirs. No, the type of people that make up the kingdom are going to be Jesus' second point, to do good when evil is being done. The example is given here of turning the other cheek, of offering up your coat, go the extra mile, give to him that asks. He is saying that evil actions will always be repaid with love and with goodwill. Whether they be physical, whether they be civil, forceful, or even just completely inconvenient, the righteous will seek ways to show goodwill to others. And that brings us to the the final contrast that we're going to look at this morning, and that is the love towards enemies in verses 43 through the end of the chapter. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brother, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." This is the perfect place for Jesus to interject this lesson also. Having just compared the goodwill of the righteousness of the kingdom to the vengeful attitudes of the traditions of the Jews of that day, the old law taught nothing of hating your enemies. As we already read in Leviticus 19, verse 18, we read that passage there, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The next words were not, and hate your enemy. They were, I am the Lord. That was the end of that sentence. But they had, they had twisted this to say, well, if we are to love our neighbors, that must give us the right to hate our enemies. Maybe one might say they inferred that off of it, but it was certainly not a necessary inference because of the old law had much to say about the kindness that you show to your enemies. Exodus 23, verses 4 through 5 said, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helplessly under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Proverbs 25, verse 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food or eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. So again, Jesus teaches the righteousness of the kingdom Instead, of, instead we, uh, of, of saying we shall hate our enemies, the righteousness of the kingdom says we will love our enemies. We should not just have, uh, just have goodwill toward them. We should have a certain type of goodwill, a goodwill that is active, a goodwill that is motivated to do something. He says to pray for them when they persecute you. I remember the first time I read that, I thought, boy, I, that's an easy one. Every time somebody persecutes me, boy, I, I pray for them. 
I pray that maybe, maybe God will look down and I'll get my vengeance one day on them. That God will give them what's coming to them. I'm going to tell you right now, that's not praying for them. That's praying about them. We're told to pray for them. That means that we're to pray on their behalf. We'd pray for their well-being. We would pray that they might have an opportunity to be saved. We talked about that in class this morning, that there would be patience on our part and that God would give them time to repent so that they might be saved one day. It could be said then that what Jesus says here in these passages is an expansion of what he just got through saying uh, when when he talked about not exacting vengeance. He's saying now, instead of exacting vengeance, we are to manifest radical love. Love that had become completely countercultural in that day. Love that is still today completely countercultural. And then three reasons are given for this. The first one is so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Show yourselves by imitation to be children of God. God who gives blessings to both the righteous and the unrighteous. God who is kind to the unthankful. God who gave his son, as, as, <coughs> excuse me, as Ronnie talked about this morning at the Lord's Supper table, for the sinful, for the people who did not love him, he loved us first. So that's the first reason he gives. You do this so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The second reason is you do this so that, uh, because otherwise you are no different than the tax collectors and the Gentiles. The Jews despised the tax collectors and the Gentiles. This would have spoke volumes to them. It's important for us to remember that these words weren't first spoken to us here in Nicholasville, Kentucky. Whenever these words were spoken to the Jews, this would have been a very hard thing to hear because they, they had such a, a, a hatred for, for these uh, Gentiles and for the tax collectors because, one, the Gentiles were seen as, uh, any Gentile was seen as someone who is not as, as good as them someone who is not as righteous as them, someone who God had, had not selected to be his people. And so they, they viewed the, the Gentiles as something of, of someone of, of lesser inferiority to them. They certainly didn't want to be compared to that, but they also viewed the tax collectors as one to be despised because they were people who had become rich off of them. They had taken money from them, their fellow countrymen, by collecting taxes for their enemy, the Romans. And so in general, these were men who they would not want to be compared to. And in general, these were men who would only love others that, that loved them back. That was, that was a, a very cultural thing again then and a cultural thing now. It's, it's typical for us to want to love people who love us back, who treat us well, who are cordial to us, so we will greet them kindly. Someone comes up to you and, and, uh, and maybe kind of pushes you out of your way, out of their way as they walk down the aisle at the grocery store, you don't really have a lot of times a, a great draw to turn around and try to greet them with kindness. And that was what Jesus was talking about here. He was saying there is no difference. There is no difference between someone who, who acts in that way and you if you limit your love to those who are just friendly to you, such as the brethren. And then Jesus makes his final statement in verse 48. And he says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. My lesson was titled, How Does Jesus Make Me Excel? And this passage in verse 48 helped me to understand exactly how Jesus makes me excel. 
See, many have attributed these words to the immediate context of verse 43 through 47 when it talks about loving your, your neighbor and loving your enemy likewise. But I want to challenge us to look further back than that. To look back to verse 21 and to have self-control over our emotions. To have purity of our heart and to despise sin. To have faithfulness to the relationships that we have in this life and faithfulness to the words that we speak. To have goodwill and love for all mankind, even those who are our enemies. Then, therefore, the, the reason that the therefore is there, Doing these things will make you perfect, like the Heavenly Father is perfect. That word perfect doesn't mean, in, in, in the sense that it's used there, it doesn't mean that you will never make a mistake. That word perfect there doesn't mean that you can absolutely do no wrong. The word perfect there means that you will be complete. You will be full grown. You will be mature. You will be lacking in nothing. So how does Jesus make me excel? Well, it's kind of like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us. He does it exactly as he does it here in these passages. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, as the NASB says. Other translations say complete. I think the NIV says thoroughly prepared and equipped for every good work. He makes me excel by making me more like the Father whom which he is revealing to me through his word. John chapter 1 verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he, capital he, has explained, capital him. Jesus explains God to us. He, he shows us the goodness of God. He shows us the love of God. He shows us the mercy of God. He shows us the wrath of God. He explains God to us, and this is how Jesus helps us excel, by helping us to see what it is we are to be imitating. But let me say this this morning, that the only way, <clears throat> the only way that Jesus can help you excel, the only way that he can help you see God and draw close to God is if you are open to following him. And we have an opportunity this morning to do just that. If you've never done so before, you have an opportunity to begin following God today. You can follow him by confessing that he is the son of God. You can follow him by repenting of unrighteous things in your life and turning towards his righteousness, walking in his righteousness. You can follow him by being baptized and receiving forgiveness of your sins. If we have not done these things, if we have not begun to follow Christ in the way that he has called us to follow him, then we are not excelling. We are not even saved. We are lost in our sin, but we don't have to be. The invitation to follow Christ is yours this morning. I hope you will consider it. And if, if there be anything that we can do, come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.